Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Please check out our friends at radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really do appreciate it. On today's show, we're going to be discussing a new book about the 1923 general election in the Irish Free State called Vying for Victory. And we're very pleased to be joined by two of the authors, Elaine Callanan and Mel Farrell. Dr. Elaine Callanan is a lecturer in modern Irish history at Carlow College, St. Patrick's. And Dr. Mel Farrell is also a lecturer in Irish history at Carlow College, St. Patrick's. Mel, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on. Now, first, we just wanted to let the listeners know, why is the 1923 general election in the Free State so important? Indeed. Well, it's funny enough, it's kind of been uh, neglected in comparison to the 1918 election and the 1922 election. So obviously the 1918 election was the first occasion in which women over the age of 30 got the vote. And it was obviously the the election that marked the victory of Sinn Féin over the Irish Parliamentary Party. Then in 1922, obviously the uh, pact election, when uh, Collins and de Valera agreed a pact uh, to put forward a Sinn Féin panel, uh, trying to replicate the treaty positions in the uh, second all. Whereas in fact, the 1923 election as far as we're considered, uh, Elaine uh, Thomas and I, this was actually the election that marked the beginning of modern Irish democracy. Because on this occasion, this was the first occasion in which all women aged 21 or over got the vote on the same basis as men. And it was also the first election in which every constituency was contested. Uh, in 1922, eight constituencies were not contested. Uh, in 1918, uh, I think 25 of the Sinn Féiners were actually elected without contests. So we consider the 1923 election the moment where the Irish uh, revolution really transitioned into uh, into electoral politics. And it's also the election that really set the mould uh, for, for modern Irish democracy and, and modern Irish electoral history. And Mel, the 1923 election was, I think, very unusual in international terms in that it happened right after civil war. So mostly when civil war is finished, you don't have a, a rerun as an electoral contest. But why was there an election so soon after the ceasefires and the dump arms order in the civil war? Absolutely. I mean, 
it is really remarkable. So yeah, obviously the civil war had been petering out in the spring of 1922, but it formally ended on the 24th of May, 1923. And then 12 weeks later, you have this general election and you have both of the sides in the civil war contesting that election. It is quite remarkable also that the election was so peaceful, given that it came, you know, so soon after the end of the civil war. Um, and, you know, Garrod Barry in our book, in his chapter 10, you know, he talks about that and he puts it in its European context. This was highly unusual, but the, uh, you know, he puts it very well. I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says, you know, that the willingness of both uh, sides in the civil war to share the electoral space so soon after the civil war really pointed to you know a democratic future for the new state now obviously there had been the election in 1922 which was necessary but at that time even though um you know the provisional government you know had been promising that there would be uh, universal adult suffrage with the timing involved it wasn't possible to put together a new electoral register uh, in time. You know, it was a really slow process of updating the register to take into account all of the newly uh, enfranchised voters. So it was always expected there would be another election, you know, obviously the Civil War period. The 1922 election also, of course, you know, just to point out, you know, happened just before the Civil War. So Civil War was hanging in the air. The threat of Civil War was in the air in 1922. Obviously, by August 1923, the Civil War has already happened at that stage. So everything, you know, the atrocities on both sides, the the executions by the government, you know, everything was in the mix when people went to vote in August 1923. So, yeah, I mean, it is quite remarkable that that the election happened so soon after the Civil War uh, and that it passed off rather peacefully uh, in that context. There was uh, people in the all were pushing for, uh, you know, right after the civil war, were pushing the government, you know, when will the election be? You know, when will the election be? Um, and, you know, the government's kind of response was, you know, they had to update the register. Um, so, in fact, you know, there was a push to have the election even sooner than it actually happened yeah, that summer of 1923. But as we know, it happened on the 27th of August, 1923. So even though the civil war has come to a close, we still do have things like martial law and a lot of Republicans still in jail. How does that affect the electoral contest? Absolutely. So you have 12,000, some 12,000 anti-treaty Republican prisoners still in prison um, when the election takes place. And for Republicans, for many Republicans, you know, obviously the 1922 election, you know, had been a disaster for, for anti-treatyites. You know, they won 36 seats in 1922, uh, but it was actually the the Collins de Valera Pact had worked to their advantage at that stage uh, because of the the arrangement between the two sides for for the vote transfer, because the anti-treatyites actually won in 1922 roughly the same number of first preferences, around 21% as the Labour candidates, but yet Labour won 17 seats, the anti-treatyites won 36. So then, you know, obviously in 1922 it was clear that, you you know, the people weren't weren't with them in terms of their position on the treaty so then you had the, the civil war which was an unmitigated disaster uh, and then obviously the fact that the government had 12,000 republican prisoners uh, still in custody so for republicans they felt well this election is is not going to be a free or fair contest you know they really questioned the democratic uh, credentials of of the new state uh, so there was actually uh, for many republicans they didn't really want to contest the election. 
But De Valera, obviously, De Valera had been very marginal after the, the treaty vote in the Dáil. He sort of lost his position uh, of leadership, you know, during the Civil War. It was kind of the anti-treaty IRA, Liam Lynch and others who were who were calling the shots. So that the end of the Civil War allowed De Valera to resume political leadership. Uh, he revived Sinn Féin, of course, at the end of the Civil War in June 1923. And he started the process of leading Republicans back uh, on a sort of trying to achieve their objectives through the political process. But But even at that, a month out from the election, Sinn Féin had not actually taken a definite decision to contest the 1923 election. And it was actually only on the 25th of July that the party's organising committee resolved to contest the election to the fullest extent that they could. And they decided, obviously, to put up 85 candidates in that election. And obviously, as we know, they had a a good electoral outcome, which uh, vindicated De Valera's call to to lead Republicans back on a political path. So, Elaine, what was the message of the anti-treatyites running as Sinn Féin in this election? Well, uh, the main message uh, of the anti-treatyites, of course, was that the treaty didn't work um, in many ways, but they were prepared to contest this election anyway, if you like. If if you look at Eamon de Valera during this time, and David McCullough writes very well on him um, in the book Vying for Victory, his political power was seeping away at this point in time. So he really needed to make a, a comeback, if you like. You know, he, he needed to, to put Sinn Féin back on the map again. Really, I suppose they were very much stating that they were the party that could save the nation going forward. Mel, we were talking about the context of the civil war and there's many unusual things about this election. So, for example, the National Army is still mostly mobilised at this time. It's still very large. Still a lot of prisoners, as you mentioned, in jail. And quite a few of the prisoners actually run as candidates in the election. I mean, notwithstanding what I said about, you know, the election was remarkably peaceful given its proximity to the end of the Civil War. At the same time, there were reminders of the uh, the conflict that had just ended, the prisoners issue. But also at mid-campaign, you had the first anniversaries of Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins and extensive coverage in the papers. And then, you know, the sensational uh, arrest of Eamon de Valera in Ennis as he addressed a Republican election demonstration by uh, Free State troops, and he was taken off to to Arbor Hill. And of course, during the election, Cosgrave actually announced the arrest of de Valera at a Common and Whale election uh, rally uh, in County Louth. And he made the point that, you know, de Valera was quite safe where he had been taken, unlike many other people you know, who had been casualties during the Civil War. But of course, um, not to jump too far ahead, but, uh, you know, Sinn Féin had a, quite a good election, gaining eight seats. And many figures within Cumann and Wales felt that the arrest of de Valera had been a propaganda coup uh, for Sinn Féin, you know, in the final weeks, the final two weeks of the election campaign itself. So, yeah, no, absolutely, you know, the, the issues um, around the end of the Civil War were very much prominent in the election campaign. Now, Elaine, in terms of the election and in terms of Sinn Féin and the Republicans, are they making the point a lot in terms of the 1922 election that the 1922 election did not give the free state, the pro-treaty government, the right to carry out the Civil War? 
They don't make that a, a lot in terms of that kind of context, in my opinion, um, in 1923, but they certainly do make the point that the elected uh, Republican members uh, will refuse to take any oath of allegiance and things like that. You know, material that was sort of agreed by Common Aguil in the Anglo-Irish Treaty. And of course, um, you know, de Valera sets out to write an, a Sinn Féin election manifesto uh, in quite a forceful tone of, of indignation against the propagandists who have been telling the world the base lie that the Irish people have chosen to become a partitioned British province. So they're the two issues that he's primarily fighting Common Aguil on um, in relation to both the treaty itself and in the context of the actual election. One of the things that de Valera tries to do in many ways is create continuity with the past that Sinn Féin was involved in. For example, um, he'll mention Porrick Pierce and he'll draw in some of the others from uh, the 1916 uh, Easter Rising, um, that the leaders primarily of the 1916 Rising. And what he's trying to do, I suppose, is create that whole idea of wanting to go forward in terms of a united Ireland and a republic. Yet he has to balance that against the fact that he wants to go forward politically um, as opposed to militarily. So he's got to put forward his candidates and his ideas in a political sense. And, you know, he does that in a reasonably good way. And Comnaguel will come back against him and all of that, against their kind of negative treaty propaganda by highlighting that Ireland wants to settle down. In other words, they've had enough of war and fighting and all the rest of it. And really, people are interested in peace and prosperity. So that, that's kind of the way the two of them are angling over those issues of the treaty and the issues of 1922 as they move into 1923. And how much do they make the point that a vote for the anti-treatyites is a vote to get people out of jail? That's very hard to judge uh, in many ways. Uh, that was certainly a campaign that ran very, very strongly in, say, for example, the 1918 general election. And they created a, a whole poster campaign, which I argue was actually a very good poster campaign, uh, which was to put them in to get him out uh, poster campaign and that the message of course to voters was put him into government and get him out of jail and the candidate was named on that particular poster and that was one of the big messages of 1918. They didn't in my opinion or certainly in terms of what I've looked up labour on the point of getting prisoners out of jail in the 1923 election. In fact actually you know as the election date begins to loom, Sinn Féin uh, begins to concentrate on even some of the more pertinent issues to voters, like some of the bread and butter issues. But their argument is always, um, throughout the campaign, if you like, is um, like the political strategy is to kind of link Sinn Féin and their past anti-treaty and separatist aspirations to go forward uh, in all of this. But you know, I kind of agree with um, Michael Laffin um, in terms of his comments when he says that Sinn Féin largely concerned themselves with abstractions uh, rather than material questions. But up to a point, I do think then they start to hone in a little bit um, as you get closer to the election day on some of the more real issues for voters. And Mel, what was the basis of Coming the Nail, so the relatively new pro-treaty party? Absolutely. So... 
Commonwealth Wales Genesis really arose through the pro-treaty Sinn Féin election committee, uh, which was set up in the spring of 1922. So in August of 1922, you know, with civil war, you know, raging across the country, the pro-treaty election committees resolved to form a new political party to support the free state government. So this was a, a recognition really that the split of the Sinn Féin movement uh, was by this stage permanent. Um, so they took steps towards creating a political party to uphold the treaty settlement and uh, support the, the new government in that regard. And they actually had a conference in Five Parnell Square in December 1922. And that conference is where the uh, there was actually a motion put to that conference to continue on as Sinn Féin. And Ernest Blythe, uh, the minutes record, he was very force, forceful in saying, you know, Sinn Féin's work is done. You know, it's time for new structures. Of course, the, the situation in Sinn Féin was very complex. You know, there were pro and anti-treaty positions at every level from the common right up to the to the executive. But of course, the party president was Eamon de Valera still. So pro-treatyites decided to, to start with a, with a new political party on that occasion. Uh, various names were put forward on common nasiunta, common nasair There was even one common son as Aaron, party for the, the happiness of Ireland. But they actually settled on common Noel as the name of the party. Um, of course, you know, Arthur Griffith had set up an organisation called Common the Whale in 1900, and it was one of the strands that went into Sinn Féin in 1905. So it's kind of a nod to the past, uh, representing continuity and change. So Common the Whale then, uh, you know, you had the, obviously we know the Free State, the birth of the Free State uh, on the 6th of December 1922 was completely overshadowed by the attack on uh, Sean Hales and Porik Omalia. Omalia was wounded, Sean Hales was shot dead. And then you had the uh, extrajudicial executions of the four Republican prisoners um, as a reprisal. So this was obviously um, a devastating start to life in the free state. Um, so they decided to defer a public launch uh, of the party, uh, people like Richard Mulcahy are, you know, are writing uh, to to the people, you know, organising the party to say, you know, you have to, you have to kind of defer things. So they deferred a public launch until April, uh, nineteen twenty three, which kind of showed the extent to which things were beginning to stabilise uh, in the spring of nineteen twenty two. So Cumann and then was launched on the twenty seventh of April in the Mansion House, and this new political party. Um, really was all about upholding the treaty settlement. You know, it, it encompassed people who had, you know, accepted the treaty for various reasons. You know, there were 40 shades of green involved. You know, some people were very Republican. Some people were very nationalist. Some people wanted to see just a British evacuation. So so people accepted the treaty for different reasons. So that Common and Wales was basically a coalition of people who supported the treaty. And obviously, with nationalism divided on the treaty question, Cumann and Wales could not replicate the dominance of the old Sinn Féin in 1918, 1919. So they very quickly recognised that to maximise their vote, they had to appeal to new, what were referred to euphemistically as new elements. Uh, and I read this as voters anxious to avert a return to violence and instability. So they do pitch 
uh, as I say in my chapter in the book, a safety first message, you know, that a vote for Cumann and Gael is a vote for stability. You know, it's a vote to work the treaty. It's a vote to get on, as Elaine said there, with the bread and butter issues uh, and to, to, to move forward you know, in a in a new era under the free state. And that's pretty much what Cumann and Gael represents through, uh, you know, from 1923 until until 1933. Uh, and just on that, Mel, I mean, I've looked at the 1923 campaign myself a little bit and you see fairly outlandish things, I would say, said on both sides. Like, for example, I think Ernest Blythe said campaigning up in Cavan Monaghan that Nobody got executed except who deserved it, and all every one of them deserved to be shot. You know, you hear fairly, yeah. fairly wild yeah. things said during the campaign. Absolutely, you know, there was quite a lot of heat. And funny enough, I would argue actually, subsequent elections were, were even more heated. You know, in uh, September nineteen twenty-seven, and uh, you know the, the nineteen thirty-three election was obviously extremely heated uh, in January nineteen thirty-three. But yeah, no, there there, there was quite. Uh, some vitriol uh, in August 1923 as well. Obviously, Cosgrave as well addressing um, the rally uh, in Dublin uh, on the 12th of August. You know, they're you know responding to Republican hecklers. Uh, you know, stating that uh, he and his colleagues had only ever drawn guns for the flag pointing at the tricolor. You know, implying that uh, those on the other side obviously had. Um, uh, you know, had uh, had uh, ulterior motives from his perspective. So yeah, no, there, there was quite a lot of heat um, in the election for sure. And Elaine, what role did uh, all these new parties play from the third doll into the fourth doll when we, did, we had that Sinn Fein monolith running things from nineteen early nineteen nineteen onwards? Presumably, talking about parties like the the Farmers Party and the Labour Party and and parties like that. And in in terms of competition in 1923, I think they they put on the table some different ideas that even you know Sinn Fein and Common Aguil will pick up in later elections. I mean, obviously, parties like the Farmers Party. Well, I mean, agriculture was their main theme throughout most of their propaganda. But they also spoke about issues like political unity, prosperity reduction in the cost of living, education. In fact, actually, ironically, some of the things that we talk about today. But, um, you know, they, they were very vehement in making points like agriculture was the only wealth producing industry in the country and that any other industry in the country imported, whereas agriculture exported. Um, and I think they kind of drove home that message and they did quite well um, in the election as a result of that, gaining, I think it was 9.8% of the overall vote. Labour had a couple of issues that were similar to Sinn Féin in this particular election. And, you know, sometimes it was difficult to separate out uh, some of the Labour points and the Sinn Féin points. For example, uh, Labour would have had issues with the oath of fidelity to the free state and the allegiance to the king. But unlike Sinn Féin, they were, you know, talking about things like preparing to take the oath, but only if it will help the workers and what they were advocating for in many areas was a, a Labour Republic, particularly in counties like Kerry. They did double the number of candidates for this election because they'd done well in 1922, but they actually only won 14 seats um, out of those number of candidates. So um, they attained actually in the end of the day less than half the votes achieved in 1922. So I think really indicates that the, the voting public at the time were very much leaning towards the, the Common Aguil Safety First campaign, if you like, that that sort of won the day, even if it was 
by maybe not a, a massive majority, it certainly kind of appealed to a lot of voters, like let's just move forward, get rid of the violence and uh, start working on building a nation. And one thing which I think is underemphasized generally in the history is the 1923 Land Act. What part did that play in the election campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so obviously, Terence Dooley uh, is is the authority on this particular question. But the land, obviously, there had been a lot of progress under, you know, before the foundation of the state under the successive land acts under the British. But there was still a huge issue with only economic holdings. There was still an issue with a need for land redistribution. You know, in 1922, Terence Dooley argues in his book that the the drafting of the land bill. It was very much linked to the end of the civil war um, because the government made clear in that legislation that those who engaged in violence against the state would be outside of the parameters of the legislation. So he he kind of does link the uh, the new legislation with the end of the civil war. I mean, coming away, you know, I, I kind of suggest in, in my own piece, in my own chapter, that they were uh, under a lot of pressure because they were the first party of government of an independent Ireland. You know, the state was facing a financial crisis because of the cost of the civil war. But at the same time, there had to be tangible benefits to independence. So in April 1923, at the land, the the government arranged a conference with the uh, tenants representatives, the land purchase and arrears conference. And there, the, the tenants representatives put it very bluntly. The people want to have the land cheaply. And if the government doesn't deliver, we will put in a government the next time who will. So even though the state was facing a financial crisis, you know, I mean, spending on the civil war was about double a year's tax intake at the time. You know, it was uh, of that scale. So they actually used, you know, some clever financial engineering to underpin the 1923 Land Act, which for the first time provided for a compulsory purchase under this legislation. And obviously, I think Dooley, I'd have to double check, but I think Dooley says around about 30 million would have been the cost. So this was really a landmark policy for the government going into the election. And as Elaine has pointed out previously, it was passed into law on the 9th of August, 1923. You know, so it coincided with the dissolution of the Dáil ahead of the election. So basically, this was really the government's big policy, if you like, uh, going into the election that they were providing for the 1923 Land Act. And obviously, you know, we've talked a lot here about how, you know, Labour had a good election in, in 1922, not so good in 1923. Some would kind of read into that, you know, that Labour had attracted that vote in 1922 for people anxious to kind of get on with things, kind of voting against militarism. They had picked that up in 1922. But I, I think coming in 1923 with the safety first kind of platform and the you know the land act they were actually now bringing that kind of vote with them on, on this occasion i think the 1923 land act was hugely you know significant in that regard now obviously land problems continued as, as terence dooley points out in his book i think successive governments found that there just wasn't enough land uh, to, to keep everybody happy you know so so land you know remained a huge issue for decades to come I was going to say, I agree with Mel on that. And I think alongside uh, the Land Act and that kind of thing, one of Cumna Gwale's big arguments was that they were best placed to address the future finances of this new Irish free state. 
even though that was one of the main things that Sinn Féin is criticising them for. And so does actually William Archer Redmond, who was an independent in Waterford, who took them to task on, on pensions and things like that. But Cumann Aguay will make the argument that they are the people that dealt with the British, that you know knew where they were going, that had a plan for the future of the country, and that basically they were saying that Ireland wanted to settle down and wanted more work. So they were appealing to kind of both the war fatigue element their ability to provide prosperity and future employment for people. So I think it kind of goes hand in hand with this whole idea of the Land Act as well. Just to jump in again, I agree with Elaine there, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we, we sometimes kind of look back at Cumann and Gael and we see them kind of as uh, a party well to the right, you know, but in fact, they saw themselves in the 20s kind of as a centre party and one of their newspapers even had a slogan you know attacked from the right attacked from the left we we will stick to the middle of the road so as Elaine pointed out it's a very important point you know groups like the farmers party were attacking them because they weren't fiscally conservative enough <laughs> with the purse strings and obviously you know other groups were attacking them for down the line you know Ernest Blythe uh, cutting a shilling off the old age pension and that so yeah they, they, they kind of saw themselves in the middle as a government you know with with these different groups opposed to them on the left and the right. Yeah you know I think one underappreciated thing though is about coming and nail in 1923 is you do get people who come in and nail saying things like the Irish revolution is finished and we won the revolution. The revolution has succeeded. And they use those those words, which you wouldn't expect probably from them in subsequent years. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, like I can I can rattle off a few quotes from from the hustings. Even, you know, you have people, you know, down in Waterford uh, candidates saying, you know, talking about a free Ireland and, you know, a free Ireland uh, being achieved and people trying to put forward the idea that their support of the treaty you know, as common and oil candidates does not dilute, you know, their nationalism and that, you know, they still believe in the things they had always believed in. And even, I mean, uh, Joe McGrath had actually announced that he was retiring from national politics and he wasn't going forward in Dublin North in the 1923 election. And it's quite remarkable. I mean, Cosgrave actually issued a public appeal published in the national newspapers uh, in August 1923, basically begging him to reconsider and saying, you know, you have a national record to be proud of and I want you to stand in the election and, and McGrath then is selected in Mayo North and one of the other Commonwealth candidates withdraws. I think he joined the, he, I think the last day that nominations could go in about the 15th of August. So like two weeks before polling, uh, McGrath joined the ticket for Commonwealth in Mayo North and was elected. So yeah, no, absolutely. They were putting forward the revolutionary foot in 1923, so to speak, you know, that they were linking themselves with the revolution and linking themselves with, like, for example, in Longford Westmead, Sean McKeown not going forward is a big blow to them because he got 10,000 first preferences in 1922 on account of his war record in the War of Independence. But then he obviously, he concentrated on his army career during the 20s, didn't go forward for coming and well. And, um, you know, they actually struggled, even though Longford S. Mead was a four-seater in 1922, pro-treaty Sinn Féin had two seats. But in 1923, it went up to a five-seater and coming and well could only get one candidate elected, uh, P.W. Shaw. So it does show you that their antennae was correct, you know, that having candidates with a, with a good war record was was important to them. Now, Elaine, you mentioned there earlier uh, Captain William Redmond, and we've also mentioned the Farmers Party. But 
I'd be curious to know what role did former Irish Parliamentary Party and former Unionist voters play in the third and fourth doll? Well, obviously, the Irish Parliamentary Party itself is gone uh, since really the, the end of the 1918 general election. But there certainly are players still involved in politics during this time on the Irish Parliamentary Party side and on the Unionist side. Where we see unionists, we see them actually an awful lot more in local politics uh, than we do in the national politics side of things in in organisations like the Ratepayers Association and so on and so forth. But we see more Irish Parliamentary Party candidates going down the route of Common Aguail and their, the ideals of Common Aguail, because I, I suppose really in the end of the day, you know, they have were and always were advocating for home rule. And this was a form of home rule that they could sit well with. Uh, they certainly didn't sit well with uh, as much the anti-treaty side of things. So uh, where you see them a lot is in the Common Aguail side of things, like where you see the Irish Parliamentary Party interests as well. Uh, is on the Common Aguail side and um, unionists, as I say, yes, also on Common Aguail, but, uh, you know, divvied out a little bit into farmers too, but very much interested in local politics on things like town tenants and ratepayers uh, and places like that. If I could just jump in there, sorry, just I agree with what Elaine said. You once had Major Miles elected in Donegal. You had uh, Brian Cooper uh, elected in Dublin County. Uh, and then obviously you also had Arthur Griffith had made a promise at the time of the treaty negotiations that the minority population would have representation. Uh, so in the, in the original Free State Senate, they actually reserved seats for uh, the minority interests. So in fact, I suppose two things, proportional representation, first of all, but then also the, the makeup of the 1922 Senate did allow for, uh, you know, minority voices to come through the political process, uh, you know, and be heard in the free state uh, political system, uh, which obviously with, with the first past the post, uh, you know, that wasn't possible in 1918, for example. And when Northern Ireland uh, returned to first past the post, obviously it was very hard for the, for the nationalist voice to be properly represented through political structures there. Uh, and just Elaine made a very good point about Cumann and Gael. You know, Cumann and Gael were asked, uh, you know, when or- organisers were out in the constituencies, you know, they, they fed back information, you know, our, our, our unionists welcome in the party. And, and the response was all elements, you know, new and old are welcome in, in the party, which did cause friction like down in Cork. Uh, for example, they, they cooperated with the Cork Progressives, uh, Beamish and O'Shocknessy, uh, with former unionist associations, which caused friction for uh, Cumann and Wailers who came through from the, from the uh, Sinn Féin tradition. Now, Elaine, we might just talk now about women voters and what was their role in this election? Well, uh, this is really an area that Claire McGing looks very much into in the book, but um, it's an area that I have an interest in myself for obvious reasons. Women voters were very active in 1923. In fact, actually, women voters were active since they got the vote. But of course, the difference at this point, as opposed to, say, 1918, is that all women over the age of 21 could vote. The difficulty with this election, as is with a lot of the elections um, in Ireland until the very recent past, um, is that there really wasn't enough women candidates to to know how women would have voted in relation to women candidates. But certainly they exercised their rights to vote. And Claire McGain makes the point that uh, women accounted for between 43 percent and 49 percent 
of voters in the constituency. But where women also played a big role, um, and particularly Republican women really uh, during this time, was in actually carrying out an awful lot of the electioneering. They did a lot of fundraising uh, for the election campaign and fundraising for, you mentioned prisoners earlier, they did fundraising for interned prisoners and, uh, and their dependents. You know, one Republican woman makes the point that electioneering was simply another way to work against the treaty. So um, they were still very much on the Sinn Féin side, which plays out poorly for them in the end of the day when Common Aguayle come to power, because there's really only one woman candidate there that takes her seat, and that is Margaret Collins O'Driscoll. Any of the other Sinn Féin uh, women followed the policy of abstentionism. So it's difficult to know going forward if that had an impact on women in politics. But certainly uh, during this election, I think similar to past elections, actually, women still saw themselves as voters and electioneers rather than candidates. Uh, but then it was also very difficult for women to get selected by political parties for good constituencies. So, you know, as we saw even back in 1918, particularly on the Labour side of things, some women turned down the idea of running for election because they were really getting poor constituencies. And that would have happened, for example, to Winifred Carney as well, who ran for Sinn Féin in the Victoria constituency in Belfast. So, you know, there's a lot still in terms of politics and women to iron out um, in terms of all of this, um, in terms of all of this kind of electioneering and running as candidates. Certainly in terms of turnout, the, the, the turnout of women, again, was very strong in this election. Elaine, just one more point there on turnout. The turnout is surprisingly low. It's only 59%. Uh, why do you think this was? I actually think this was largely due to voters being fed up of elections, actually, if you want the truth of it. I mean, if you, if you do the calculations, they went to the polls in 1918. They went back again for local urban and rural elections in 1920. There was a, supposed to be an election in 1921, but the southern state didn't run it. Uh, but there was still a bit of uh, propagandizing for that election. Uh, they were back at the polls in 1922 and they were back again at 1923. So uh, and there could also be in a sort of feeling like, what's the point? Um, you know, we said before that we wanted to go forward peacefully and we were in favour of the treaty. But then it all broke down into a civil war because our politicians um, on you know, one side didn't agree with that. Uh, so there's probably a number of reasons. And then, of course, you're also back in a time where it is a little bit more difficult to get to the polls. But I was surprised um, in terms of 1923, given that it was the setting up of the Irish Free State, that the turnout was still, like there was still a lot of apathy um, amongst the voting public. And I thought even if they were not too impressed with Common Gael or Sinn Féin, they might have actually stepped more towards Labour or the farmers. But that didn't seem to be, well, it certainly, farmers did better uh, in this election. But uh, you still had a lot of uh, abstention from the polls. So it's hard to know what goes on in people's minds uh, when it comes to these things. But I would put it primarily down to election fatigue. And Mel, well, just one more point before we move on to the election day itself and the results. A very strong part of the Republican narrative of the Civil War and of this election was that the role of the press and of the Catholic Church was very much in favour of the pro-treaty side. Is that something that you found? researching this book? 
Definitely. Well, you know, from the very beginning, um, not to not to go off the point too much, but the treaty obviously was signed 6th of December uh, 1921 and immediately public opinion, the newspapers, national and local, all felt the treaty was the best deal and, and should be accepted. So from the very beginning, uh, you know, the newspapers were very strongly in favour of the treaty. Uh, and then obviously subsequently uh, that translated into support for Common and Well, um, you know, by 1923. Owen O'Shea has a chapter in our book uh, looking at the constituency of Kerry, um, where, as was the case, you know, in most constituencies, the, the local press were very supportive of the pro-treaty position and Common and Well. But all the same, uh, the voters in Kerry uh, still went out and gave uh, Sinn Féin uh, one of their best results, you know, where they they actually took, uh, uh, you know, four of the of the of the, of the seats on offer uh, in the Kerry constituency. Um, so it kind of goes to show you that even though you know the newspapers could be very supportive of Cumann and Gael, in a constituency like Kerry, that could still not translate into a, a strong showing for Cumann and Gael. Of course, Kerry is a unique example because of the atrocities that took place in Kerry during the Civil War. You know, obviously the free state, it's setting up the government's position. The civil war caused a lot of friction with voters, but it's still important, you know, that despite the pro-treaty stance of the newspapers there, you know, uh, Sinn Féin, um, the anti-treaty position still had a very, very strong uh, showing in the Kerry constituency. So I think that's an important point to make as well. But yeah, broadly, but I would argue, you know, the newspapers were just reflecting public opinion really with their support for the treaty because when you go and look, and look at the treaty you know say December 1921 January 1922 like there was um strong support for the treaty from farmers organizations you know from uh, urban councils rural councils county councils so like really the the doll support for the treaty was narrow you know a majority of seven in in uh, in the vote in 1922 but that didn't mirror the level of support for the treaty outside the doll so you know i would argue the newspapers they were shaping opinion but they were also reflecting it mm-hmm. if that and, answers your question yeah and dario quran makes the point with regard to the catholic church which of course is by far the majority religion in the country at the time that it's the only time they really interfere openly in party politics in the Southern Irish state. Correct, absolutely. Dahi makes that point. And that's something that I would have seen in my own research on the 1920s. You know, the, the 1923 election is sort of, it's the final election where, you know, the clergy publicly come out and will actually be on a platform. So in, in many constituencies in 1923, you know, you will see the local priest, uh, you know, actively involved you know, in the election campaign for Common and Gael, whereas it, later in, you know, 1927 onwards, they don't publicly associate to the same extent. So it is kind of the, the, the last election of that era where, you know, kind of a throwback to, to former times where a priest will actually come out and campaign actively uh, for one of the parties in that regard. Now, Elaine, if we could talk about the actual election day itself, was there a lot of fear that the election day would be marred by violence? And was that fear something that was held by both the government and the population at large? 
there was certainly kind of a fear of intimidation and a fear of violence, but I don't think that that was one of the main reasons that put people off going out to actually cast a vote. Uh, interesting enough, actually, it wasn't an election of violence. It was largely speaking a very peaceful election. But there was always the undercurrent from past elections. And I think Mel pointed out earlier on that it was, you know, there was more violence in some of the later elections than there was in this election. So I think the concern was that there might be violence. But in the end of the day, it, it was a lot of the violence was carried out during kind of campaign speeches. And it was mainly heckling or the throwing of eggs of candidates or things like that. It was nothing very like it was no like you know, head to heads uh, that you would have seen in the likes of the 1918 general election in constituencies like Waterford. So I think there was an, an undercurrent maybe of apprehension uh, rather than fear. And there was uh, certainly on the day itself, very, very little violence. And um, was that because the government had planned for potential violence and there was a lot of troops and uh, guardy around to prevent it happening? Well, I think that might have been one element of it, but I, I actually think it boiled down more to the fact that there was a genuine move towards politics uh, rather than militant action um, on, on all sides. Um, I think that was even true of the Sinn Féin side in many ways as well. Like, you know, de Valera was trying to turn statesman at this stage um, as opposed to being associated, uh, even though I know I've already said that he drew on characters like Porrick Pierce uh, from 1916. But I think really the emphasis was on who best could run the country going forward. And I think that that is what the message was, uh, trying to, to appeal to the voting public at the time and to encourage them to come out and vote. So, uh, and I think when you look at some of the, the the women campaigning as well, that was the same message that was being put forward. And there was encouragement to come out and vote by women to women at the time. So I'm not sure that violence really was something that kept people away from the polls. I mean, it would certainly have kept, a, you know, a few, but there were, I, I think, you know, as I've already said, that was more electoral fatigue that kept them away. But there was preparations, as you rightly point out, to ensure that any threat and violence would be quashed fairly quickly. But it never really came to that um, in the end of the day. So it's difficult to assess whether it was the fact that there was an element of protection there or whether there was just no interest in actually getting involved violently in this election. If I could just follow up just on what Elaine has said uh, as well, you have, you have to remember too that on the day before the dissolution, they passed the Prevention of Electoral Abuses Bill, which right. had, uh, you know, a wide ranging legislation covering all manner of kind of corrupt and illegal practices that we had seen in, in Irish elections uh, for some time, you know, and there were very strict penalties really uh, with this legislation, you know, for individual to deter people really from engaging in, in these kind of practices you know, like personation uh, of, you know, whether, you know, uh, another elector or even a fictitious elector or a dead voter, you could you could be fined like a hundred pound um, if you were caught engaged in any of these. That would be about the equivalent of about three and a half thousand euro today, you know, quite a quite a, a heavy uh, fine. And then obviously repeat offenders, you know, would face uh, even um, more stringent fines and maybe even uh, a period of time in prison. So to an extent, yeah, what you said earlier about planning for it, yeah, that, you know, they had this in their mind too when they brought in the uh, Prevention of Electoral Abuses Bill. 
Okay, now we're going to talk about the results, but before we dig into them, can uh, Mel, I'm going to ask you, can you just like summarize the results there with the broad brush, please? Okay, so I'll, I'll I'll leave the number crunching to Elaine. She she's uh, uh, she she's the expert on that. But it just in terms of the actual results broadly, you would have to say that the results there was a crumb of comfort for all groups except Labour, who who we've already talked about. You know, was a very disappointing outcome for Labour, but all other groups could take a positive interpretation of the results. So coming, it's obviously the doll increased in size by 25 seats. So in that, Cumann and Gale gained five seats uh, up to uh, up to 63 and 39% of the first preferences, which was a marginal increase on the 38% that the pro-treaty Sinn Féiners had won uh, in June 1922. But also um, the anti-treatyites had had a good election. Um, you know, gaining gaining votes up to 27% of the first preference vote and gaining eight seats up to 44. Um, obviously, the Farmers Party as well had had a good election. Um, so broadly speaking, if you, if you look at the election overall, you would say that it was taken as another endorsement of the treaty position. It was taken also as a vote uh, for stability, a vote to work the treaty settlement. Um, you know, it was clear with this election that that's, that question was settled at least for another four or five years. Do you know what I mean? If, if, if it was an inconclusive result, it, you know, it may have opened it up again, but it was a clear, uh, you know, vote for, for the treaty position. So it meant that really that was settled for the moment. And it's no surprise then that the government went ahead and launched the uh, national loan after the election because it was clear, you know, that this was a vote of confidence in the new state and that they could launch the national loan. But just before I hand over, it was also critically important for Eamon de Valera, as David McCullough outlines in, in chapter three of the book, because, you know, it, it's almost... Um, you know, it's difficult for us to imagine, given his dominance of Irish politics for so long in the 20th century. But at the end of the Civil War, you know, de Valera was not in a strong position, either within anti-treaty politics and obviously national politics. So he was really vindicated by Sinn Féin's strong showing. He was vindicated and kind of leading them uh, back on the political road. And obviously um, he took his own lesson from the 1923 election, uh, you know, went on to establish Fianna Fáil uh, in 1926 and went to the electorate in subsequent elections with a, a message that wasn't focused on abstract questions like the Republic, but was dealing with socioeconomic issues and obviously you know within nine years of the end of the civil war he led Fianna Fáil into government um, so uh, that so the 1923 election was really important also for Eamon de Valera. And Elaine can you comment further on that like for example what are the, what's the regional breakdown of the vote uh, are some parties stronger in other parts some parts of the country than, other, than others? Well, certainly in part of the provinces, um, Sinn Féin candidates did secure some better results, but really only in a few constituencies can they claim to have had the support of the majority of voters. Um, in like Munster, uh, they were nearly on par with Common Aguil, uh, which was kind of hardly surprising given where some of the conflicts occurred. But they were quite weak in Leinster and in the three Ulster counties of the Irish Free State. They were higher in Connacht um, in terms of results. And when you look at Dublin, um, even though that's not a province, I know it's, a, it's an area, but 
they got, secured only 18.8% of the votes compared with 51.8% uh, that were cast for Common Aguil. So, you know, what that indicates is maybe in some of the more industrial regions, that whole safety first and, you know, the, the, the employment propaganda was, was working, if you like, um, during that time. So I think you can see when you look at the overall uh, results of the parties, I mean, Mel is right. Everybody aside from Labour did well. And I mean, even Labour didn't do brutally um, in terms of this election. But you can see um, even at a glance that Munster and Connacht were probably, you know, Sinn Féin's better scores uh, in terms of this election or areas of Connacht anyway. And uh, Leinster and Ulster would have been a little bit weaker uh, in terms of their overall score. Common Aguil itself does well in Connacht. Uh, it does well in Leinster. So the breakdown in terms of all of that is quite good. But if you look at the farmers and the labour results, they do well in, um, in Munster. They also do well in Leinster um, in terms of the overall votes. So uh, in Leinster, for example, the farmers get 11% and Labour gets 13 And in Munster, the farmers get 14% and Labour gets 12 Whereas when you look at Connacht, they're down, Labour is down to 4% and farmers are down to 8%. And in Ulster, farmers do okay actually in Ulster, but Labour is uh, only at 6%. So you have you know, a fairly good divide in terms of support for these parties across Ireland, broadly speaking. And, you know, there's no one real province that pops out as saying, oh, yes, that is completely Common Aguil or that is completely Sinn Féin. There might be, you know, ebbing and flowing in terms of who voters preferred. Coming back to your point, actually, you were asking about unionists earlier on. They did actually, you know, run of quite a few candidates in this election. But the one difficulty that unionists always have is that they're fairly scattered throughout uh, the Irish Free State. They don't actually have a complete section or area of, of the country. For example, uh, you have the likes of um, Major Ruth Miles, who ran as an independent in Donegal, and he tops the poll there. Um, and you have Brian Cooper, who ran as an independent, uh, and John Good, who ran for the Businessman's Party, and they secured seats in Dublin. So, But there was a number of unsuccessful unionist candidates as well in places like Cork and Dublin also. You have a fair mix, but I think the difficulty with, you know, ex-unionists and some ex-Irish party, parliamentary party candidates is that they're, they're changing allegiance um, at this time. And um, they're, they're finding their feet, I think, in, in new parties. But um, overall, the end result, as Mel has definitively pointed out, is that this was a victory for Common Aguil, and Common Aguil made a point very quickly of stating that fact and letting people know that, you know, uh, through a statement that they issued on in September 1923, that the electors have shown that they are still amassed behind the treaty. So was it a vote for the treaty in the end of the day? I don't think so. It was actually a vote for, you know, a, a future way forward for the country as far as voters were concerned. And just one more little point, though, Elaine. So this is the second election in Irish history with proportional representation, which, of course, we're very used to at this point. But one anecdote that Ernie O'Malley, who was the imprisoned IRA leader uh, in Mountjoy at the time, tells in his memoir is that he is elected, which against his will, actually, with transfers from Richard Mulcahy 
And is there a lot of that? Do you see transfers across the treaty divide? You do actually a little bit, but for the most part, you do see transfers mainly within parties. But there are like situations where you see both. And I think that is very much based on personalities as opposed to party allegiance. Party allegiance is being formed at this time. And I think actually in this period of Irish electoral politics, it is very much personality led and leader led in many instances. And I think that is largely sometimes how people cast their votes. A lot of these candidates are only becoming known. Uh, I mean, names we're now very familiar with um, were really only coming to the fore in 1918. So we're only at 1923 at this stage. So there's a lot of candidates that are basically fairly new to Irish politics. And of course, even in that, Sinn Féin makes the argument in the aftermath of this election campaign that they could have done an awful lot better if 12,000 of their most active men had not been in prison. Now, of course, Cumann <laughs> Aguayle comes back on that one, and they say that if these men had been at liberty, there would have been no free election because they would have been going through the constituencies with rifles and revolvers intimidating the, the public. So there's still that kind of counteracting, just coming back to your kind of threat of violence and your potential threat of violence point, but they're still fighting at the very end of it over who really, you know, had a right to win this, where all the problems were in this election. It, it comes down to the end of the day on, on the voting public and the voting public cast in favour of Common Aguayle. But, you know, when you look very closely at the figures, you know, making up the fourth doll, Common Aguayle has 41.2% of it overall. But Sinn Féin uh, comes in quite well, um, as Mel has pointed out, with 28.8%. So that does give De Valera uh, some legs to stand on. Um, and he does learn from this election. And what he quickly learns from this election and, uh, you know, the early years after it is that abstention is not working. And that's one of the reasons why he sets off to create the Fianna Fáil party, because he wants to go into politics. And all of the you know, the previous talk about, you know, not taking oaths of allegiance or oaths of fidelity or whatever it happened to be were quickly dispensed with. And he goes into electoral politics as leader of Fianna Fáil. So a lot is learned in this election by both candidates and leaders as we move into the Irish Free State. Just two quick points. Uh, first of all, you know, Elaine's results analysis chapter in the book is, is really important, you know, because it does kind of go through uh, the results in great detail. And one thing that, that clearly emerges there, we, we often think of a kind of an east-west uh, divide uh, in that period. But in fact, you know, Cumann and Gael actually performed really strongly in the west in general, notwithstanding the exception of Kerry and, and one or two others, but they actually outpolled uh, the Republicans uh, in the West by and large, where the actually where Common and Whale actually underperformed was actually the Southeast. So uh, in in the uh, constituencies of Wicklow, Waterford, Wexford, there were twelve seats on offer. Common and Whale, even though they were the government party, they only won two of those twelve seats. I've already mentioned Longford Westmeath being a disappointing result for them. You know where they only won uh, one seat out of the five. So actually, it was Leinster kind of is where Common and Whale underperformed uh, to that extent, which would kind of go against what you might expect uh, about that particular period. Common and Whale, you know, were quite vulnerable in constituencies where an ex-Redmondite uh, was running, like Waterford or, or Longford. 
Progressive Meath and also where the Farmers Party were strong, uh, like uh, like uh, Cork North, where they actually didn't win a seat um, because you know, the Farmers Party were very strong there. So Cumann and Gael did very well with 39% of the vote. Uh, as I make the point in my chapter, you know, only once uh, in the subsequent years did uh, did Fine Gael ever match the, the vote share that Cumann and Gael won in 1923 and that of course was the November 82 election but Cumann and Gael you could say did actually uh, they did underperform as I say in certain constituencies um, and then the other quick point following on from what Elaine said about yeah I mean big personalities were hugely important you know and if you look at the big vote getters in the election like De Valera 17,000 you know Cosgrave 17,000 Richard Mulcahy 22,000 you know they were the big personalities uh, of the time. Okay, and just to wrap up then, so is it fair to say that this is the election that solidified Irish democracy? I would argue that it is. Um, Put it this way, I actually think it's the election that's the basis for Irish democracy going forward. Because, you know, you have your big name personalities, as Mel has just pointed out. But you also have clearly uh, the beginnings of um, the political parties that will go on to fight in elections for the next well really even up until the present day one could argue although things are beginning to change even though de valera still runs under the Sinn Féin or republican banner in this election you can see that you know he is very much a a man of politics and he's learning as i've already said and it leads him to create uh, the Fianna Fáil party and really engage in politics and by the 1930s this kind of anti-treaty man um, is now winning in elections and Fianna Fáil are coming to the fore. Common Aguil, as we know, will go on in 1933 to evolve into Fianna Gael. And what we end up with in the country out of the old Sinn Féin party, if you like, of 1918, is two quite strong political parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who will compete and contest, really, I would argue, up until the 2020 election where we see uh, the the new Sinn Féin coming into uh, electoral politics. And I really think 2024 would be very interesting in that regard um, as to how it's all going to battle out, particularly with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael going into politics together after the last election, which if you'd said that to these lads back in 1923, they would have completely and utterly scoffed um, at any such idea because they were different back then but policies uh, have kind of and the needs of the people I suppose have changed over the years so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens to these uh, parties um, which are often referred to as the civil war parties I actually think that they start to form a long time before that but what will happen to them going forward um, in Ireland's future. Indeed Uh, a final word for you Mel? Yeah, just to follow on there on what Elaine said, you know, we often think about civil war politics as being fossilised in, in 1922, 1923. But of course, there wasn't a Fianna Fáil or a Fine Gael in the 1923 election. Uh, you know, as Elaine has outlined, these parties evolved over the next 10 years, so to speak. And in fact, the first election in Ireland where there was a Fine Gael, the first general election in Ireland where there was a Fine Gael and a Fianna Fáil on the ballot paper was the 1937 election, you know, 15 years after the civil war. So as Elaine 
Elaine said, it's a much longer term process, you know, before and after that you actually have the party system settles. And and some people, you know, did cross that divide as well. Like uh, Patrick Belton, obviously first elected for Fianna Fáil, became a common and LTD after that, and then a founding member of Fine Gael. So, you know, it wasn't quite as clear cut, you know, it, it took time for politics to become uh, clear cut between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, you know, in, in the decade or so after the foundation of the state. Now, I just want to say thank you very, very much to our two guests today, Dr. Elaine Callanan and Dr. Mel Farrell, and their book, Vying for Victory, the 1923 General Election in the Irish Free State, is available at the moment. So just to say, you can find this episode and all our previous episodes on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us. And if you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We are really grateful for all the support we receive from you, the listeners. John has set up a Patreon for the Irish Story and the Irish History Show. And if you would consider supporting the show, there is a link in the show notes. Thank you, and we really do appreciate it. So on behalf of myself, Cahill Brennan, and my co-host, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.